Welcome to Jesus at the Table. The podcast where we have real conversations about the spiritual journey, cultural issues, and big theological questions. Jesus at the Table. Uh, my name is Fran Lehman, and I'm excited to be with you today. And my guest today is Lori Adams Brown, and I'm excited to have her. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. So it's wonderful to be here. Me too. Yeah, I'm so glad, glad to be here. With us. So, hey, before we kind of jump into the topic of our conversation today, I want people to get to know you a little bit. You have lived all over the world and worked all over the world and spoken to groups of people in lots of different places. And I discovered you through your own podcast, which is called A World of Difference. And so would you just tell us a little more about Lori Adams Brown? Sure. I grew up the daughter of missionaries in South America, spent a little while in Costa Rica as a young child, and then grew up most of my growing up in Venezuela, which still feels like home to me, although I haven't been in years because the situation there is so much different than when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, but still um, a beautiful, wonderful part of who I am as a person. Um, came to the States for college, um, was a Southern Baptist for about 45 years of my life. I'm now 48, so <laughs> that's been a huge change in my life in the last few years, but grew up um, Southern Baptist missionary kid with the International Mission Board, went to a Southern Baptist University on a full leadership scholarship in Birmingham, Alabama. It's called Samford University. Met some great, wonderful people, lifelong friends there. That's where I studied sociology and also Spanish, did a double major, went to seminary here in the Bay Area where I now live, um, at Golden Gate Seminary, studied a master's in intercultural studies, then went to Indonesia for 10 years as um, an IMB missionary as well. Um, got the opportunity to be in a place that a horrible disaster happened. Um, and although that was a very huge marker in my life to be a part of the Indonesian tsunami relief, and then over the next five years to stay and help them rebuild, um, it was a very hard part of my life, but also a time where I was able to really see people make a difference by caring and loving well. Um, and that includes not just faith-based organizations, but just being a liaison with the UN and all the different NGOs that came in. I spent the next 10 years in Singapore working in a lot of community building um, kind of efforts as a missionary, but also I think that working as a missionary, I wore many hats, <laughs> so um, as many do. And then came to the States to uh, be a preacher a pastor at a mega church. I did not preach. That's actually part of the story, <laughs> but um, was a pastor at a big mega church here in Silicon Valley um, and got fired when my husband called out the abuse that I had experienced. And it turns out many people had experienced over the years. So that whole thing uh, led me into the work that I do now, which is in leadership and development. I still have a heart for doing ministry. I just don't... Um, you really, I've never really thought you had to be paid for it. Um, but at this point in my life, I get to experience what it means to bring my faith and my values into the workplace here in Silicon Valley. I'm married to my husband, Jason, who's also a missionary kid, um, went through that journey with me when we got married after college and went to seminary together. And then we also have three teenagers, 
um, who are still here living the California life with us. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. That's that's the best job I've ever heard anybody do of kind of encapsulating a pretty varied life in Oh, thank you. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, hard to make it short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because life is filled with a lot. It's interesting. You and I have some uh, common experience. I have not lived overseas, but we have a mission work to Haiti called New Life for Haiti that we started 20 plus years ago. And I've been to Haiti 120 times. And wow. um, I was there, you know, your stories about being in Indonesia and during the, the tsunami and helping people rebuild afterwards. Uh, I managed to get into Haiti just a few days after the hurricane ravaged the Southern Peninsula, which is the area where we work a number of years ago. And I've never had an experience like it in my, in my life. So yeah. just, uh, devastation beyond words. Yeah. It changes you. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole different experience. I don't think anyone should have to go through it, but if you do, it does change you and you're not the same. Yeah. You are definitely not the same. I, yeah. So, um, you, you know, you touched a little bit on some of your experience on staff in a large church as a woman, mm -hmm. and that's going to kind of lead into our, our topic today, which is the way I phrase this topic is, you know, is the, is the evangelical church at kind of a crossroads in our culture yeah. when it comes to women. But before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about your podcast so that people can find that and know what it's about. Thank you. Yeah, I started a World of Difference podcast because I was a COVID podcast that lasted <laughs> um, when we were shut down here in Santa Clara County and our county was the first to shut down. Dr. Sarah Cody here um, shut us down. We had at the time we thought the first case of COVID as they've gone back, they realized others did. But we were quick and fast and had to be because of our population density and, you know, small housing in Silicon Valley, people can't afford big houses. And so multi-generations and we were locked down and locked down for a while. And it was pretty intense during that time. Um, I was, um, had just moved from Singapore with my family, you know, all of us had grown up overseas of all five of us. And my kids were, you know, middle school and high school at this point. And so, uh, we were also in a bit of culture shock ourselves. Um, Mega church was certainly not anything we had ever worked in, although we'd been in churches our whole lives around the world. And our dads had both been pastors at different points, and we'd been pastors' kids and missionary kids, and know and love a lot of pastors, and have, you know supported them, worked alongside them, spoken in many many churches throughout our our ministry. Um, but in this situation, um, I would say the um, the nature of what was going on was I had been brought in as the second woman pastor on the staff. They had just very uh, publicly announced that they had um, brought on, or I guess given a woman on staff, a title of pastor just a few months before I was recruited from Singapore to come and take this role. Um, and then soon after things began, I saw a lot of red flags that I ignored because I thought it was culture shock. Um, mm. But also, I think when everything shut down, our lead pastor um, did not pastor us at all. It was very intense. It was very toxic. It was very scary. And a lot of us thought we were going to get fired. So in the midst of having moved from another country with my family being locked down, I was just really missing people. And I was missing the deep relationships I had grown up with 
for 45 years of my life. And I had been listening to podcasts a lot, especially in my Singapore years, I would go jogging and listen to podcasts. And I felt like, you know, I could both contribute in this space instead of feeling like a leech on the system. <laughs> but it was also a way for me to, um, you know, interview authors of books that I like to read. And I just, I needed that connection. And, and podcasting was just, it started literally as we were shut down in the pandemic. And I mean, I know it's kind of weird to say, I don't throw this around all the time, but I felt very strongly that God was asking me to start a podcast. I know it's such a weird ask. I felt, I certainly felt called to go overseas to Indonesia. I've had God speak to me in very strong, specific ways at markers in my life. Um, it's not like every single day I hear that kind of thing, but it was a strange ask. And now on this end of it, three years in 151 podcast episodes later, it's very clear God was wanted my voice and the Holy Spirit in me to speak but also for me to use my table I was building as a platform to bring on a diversity of speakers because I was really craving a diversity of voices in my church that weren't really allowed to speak into decisions. Right, right, right. right. It's interesting that you, I like that you said you were a COVID podcast that lasted. We're, we're a new podcast that was planned entirely during COVID. And then we've <laughs> come out of it and our church was going through a lot of transitions and, and we just felt like the Lord said, now is the time and, and, and you got to do so. I get that that sense of calling. So I got interested in having, you know, this having you on Jesus at the table, because uh, in this early season of our podcast, we wanted to kind of do podcast, do episodes on a bunch of different topics to give people a sense of how we were going to not shy away from big issues in the yeah. culture and in the church. And so I came across your podcast online. I don't even remember how, but I came across an episode where you had um, the theologian Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Berenger on, and, and some episodes with some other folks. And you were talking about things like abuse in the church, toxic church cultures, particularly the way uh, the abuse of women in the church. And so I, I listened and I was intrigued and I, I appreciated your voice on these things. So obviously these questions about women in the culture and the church, they matter to you. And I, can you just tell us a little bit about, and you've kind of hinted at it, but kind of where that comes from in you and in your experience? Yeah. I mean, oof, I feel like I could write, you know, a lot of books on this. Obviously, I've walked through life for my entire 48 years as a woman, right? And so my experience has only been as a woman. I have men in my life that I love dearly, my husband, my two sons, my dad, my two brothers, obviously, you know, but I'll never understand what it's like to walk through life as a man because I never have. Um, but when I read scripture and the way I've always perceived Jesus is as someone who listened to women who intentionally went out of his way to sit, you know, and listen at a well or in a home or say, stop being busy in the kitchen. I want to hear, I want, I want to be with you. I want to talk with you. Yeah. Um, you know, revealing himself as the resurrected Lord first to a woman so that she would therefore speak and that the men should have to listen to her. You know, yeah. there were so many things that to me are so intentional in the scripture. And um, I know there's a lot of people in the deconstruction space right now and reconstruction and all those words, whatever people use, untangling and, <laughs> um, you know, sifting, whatever. There's a lot of vocabulary around it. But no matter how many different angles I look at it, from all the different perspectives, that part to me has been so cherished and why um, when a lot of things have fallen away for me um, in religion and organized religion, 
at the core, I still have Jesus and it's very precious to me because I want to be like him in the sense that I listen to women, I platform women, I create tables for women and not just yeah. women, but the marginalized, you know, the oppressed. And so, but obviously women being a huge part of that even today. And so I have had a lot of experiences in both my Southern Baptist um, roots, as well as at the mega church where I worked that as a woman, I did experience what, you know, in my company today, we would call discrimination, some, you know, certainly illegal things, but um, just unethical things. And in terms of my faith, things that go strongly against my faith. And that is, um, you know, the diminishment of me as a person because of being a woman. And then also seeing that happen to other women on a regular basis. And that's a really hard experience that wasn't exclusive to women. So the the nature of my story and I go into great detail on my podcast about it. Um, and those are my most popular and downloaded episodes by far. And I've had people from all the way across the country reach out to me and say, thank you for telling your story because they either had a similar one with my same abusive lead pastor or with other ones in his what we you know call more like the bro club that he's in. Um, and so if you wanted to know more detail about the story, I, I detail it along with my husband who has his own story of abuse as well at our church in six episodes. And it's the Our Story series, um, starting with episode 100. But the, the short of it all is that a lot of it was image where I was brought in from Singapore to work on staff at this church. And they had made a huge deal at the 10th anniversary that they were bringing on women. And having been a Southern Baptist church, that was a big deal because Southern Baptists um, have long had a rocky history with women being called the title of pastor or preaching either, either one of those. Um, and so it I had no reason to believe it wasn't true that I was being brought in to be a pastor as a woman because I was being told that. But as I got in, it became clear um, I was part of an image and my voice really was not welcome. Um, and that wasn't just me. There was a black man on staff hired right after me and he, he was also treated as a token and he's, you know, had his own story. And many people have left ministry that have worked for the man that I worked for and his, um, you know, I'll say his name because it, not to give him credit, I don't like to center abusers in the story, but because he is so high profile and my husband and I did eventually go to the press around it. Um, because a year later after we were fired for my husband saying that meeting with my wife was abusive that you had, um, then our the lead pastor was hired to replace Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. So now he leads Saddleback Church. So his name's Andy Wood. Um, and he and his wife were both friends. And so that's also what's part of the betrayal is that we were invited into their home. We would do um, park times with our families. And so as you can imagine, um, walking through the betrayal of that, where um, my experience was um, I questioned him once in a strategic leadership team meeting and it wasn't rude. It was very appropriate. It was just, he was wanting to come back to the campuses before legally we were really allowed to do that. And he was pushing things that was going to cause a lot of people health risks and women who were trying to get pregnant, who had miscarried or people on staff who were immunocompromised. Like, and then also we were all burnt out. Um, we weren't allowed to say that because it was a burnout culture and they were, um, stealing our voices by replacing our vocabulary and a lot of stuff that you can read about with narcissistic abuse that's pretty common. So all I did was ask a question and I got very badly abused um, emotionally and psychologically and 
spiritually and even financially and verbally one-on-one with Andy Wood in his office um, over multiple times. And then it culminated with a big, um, after months of that, from like the summer all the way till December, a few days before Christmas, it was like a sneak attack ambush meeting um, where he and his executive pastor, Felipe Santos, mobbed me in his office um, and flanked me on both sides and interrogated me for a solid hour and tried to um, express this case they'd built against me to demine my character, but really everything they had was pretty insignificant. Um, and I detailed that part of the story, but it caused me to have a dissociative experience. Um, and, and later I sort of realized I was being abused. I didn't know it at the time because I'd never gone through anything like that, but, um, it was actually, um, Scott McKnight, as you mentioned, and, and his book, a church called Tove that gave me some uh, language and understanding. And then his wife, Chris McKnight, is also a psychologist at Wheaton. And um, he became a dear friend, both of them, in that process where I was able to um, run things by them. And, you know, especially with Chris, yeah. and she helped me understand a lot of things. And then great therapists that I've been involved with since. And then turns out after we went public in the news, all these people from around the country came to us with very similar stories with my abuser himself. And um, so a lot of what happened at Saddleback was they covered it all up. And as you know, this past summer, Rick Warren and then Andy Wood, who was apparently in Santorini at the time instead of at the Southern Baptist Convention, don't really understand um, why he wasn't there to defend his church. But some of right. it's just that's how these things go. But Rick Warren was there supposedly defending women pastors. And really what's been going on behind the scenes is it's all a show to get more it's like men need these men who who seem to be somewhat toxic in their theologies are um, not um, what I would consider really egalitarian need to be the ones to fight on behalf of women, but they're not listening to women. And so they need to yeah. be the hero of the story. Yeah. Uh, they need to be like the white savior, maybe it would be an example of when it's racism, but when it's women, they need to be the heroes of the damsels in distress. But all we ever wanted was to be listened to and heard and taken seriously. And that was not part of the plan. And so that's been um, something that's hard to walk through behind the scenes because you see what's happening out there. And I do care deeply about Southern Baptist, but what I see happening is all mixed up. And if, you know, if women were listened to women survivors in particular in the SBC, we wouldn't be where we are. And so I think we just, when all religion gets so organized that it crushes the people in it, um, when it's Christianity, like that's not following Jesus at the core, everything should fall away. And we should be like your title of your podcast, Jesus at the table. Like that's the simple right. truth. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all, all that. I, I, I appreciate your, the way you've been open about that story. I'm sure it's difficult. And at times it has felt really risky to tell your story about your, your treatment in a mega church and especially by a pastor who's who's now the leader of one of the largest mega churches in the country um and it's um you know you 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 made the the comment that after you began to go to the press and tell your story publicly all these people from around the country got in touch with you uh, who had suffered at the hands of this same person and then where my mind goes is now just multiply that out to all the other churches where that's happening that have nothing to do with that pastor or, or that right. particular church's situation. Um, and, and there's been a massive amount of this. And, you know, when we look at the church across our culture, particularly probably the more evangelical conservative church, it seems to me like we see a lot of signs of, 
unhealthy church cultures, much of it related to the way women are regarded and, and treated. But we've also seen a lot of pastors, particularly in large churches, who've been exposed for their generally abusive and dominating leadership styles, for dishonest and unhealthy financial dealings, for secretive rather than transparent leadership structures. I'm thinking about guys like Mark Driscoll and James McDonald and, and a host of others. And I'm curious what you make of, of all that, like from the vantage point of authentic Christian faith, like what has the church missed that, that we landed here? Is it just that it's now all coming out or is there, have we cultivated some things in the modern church and maybe the modern large church movement? Like how did we, from your vantage point, how did we get here? Yeah. I, from my point of view, and thank you for asking, um, it's so many things. Um, but one thing that stands out to me in particular is I think having lived in Latin America and Asia and been a part of the global church in those areas, um, and then under, and then getting into like working in a mega church in Silicon Valley, one of the things I've noticed is this growth at all costs. It feels a lot like when I read in history in my international school in Venezuela about the US, um, when we read about Manifest Destiny, the people that were coming across the United States to the West to do all these things for gold. And, you know, um, it caused a lot of, you know, generational damage and trauma for indigenous populations that to this day is still a huge um, work in progress to heal from. And so much has not been done to repair any of that. And it's almost not even acknowledged in so many circles. And it's almost like this ends justifies the means mentality that I see in Americans, white evangelical Americans in particular, because if we understand the roots of even, you know, what was going on with the Puritans coming here, there's a lot of Victorian British white culture that was brought here in a very specific way. And all of that has, you know, infiltrated a lot of this purity culture in the evangelical world. These are not things that, you know, if you look at like New Mexico, Arizona, California, um, even the women's right to vote movement has a lot of different nuance here um, because the Spanish colonization of what was Mexico, which was California, New Mexico, and Arizona back then, women didn't get relegated to the home and then men in the public sphere in that way. Like the values and the cultures were very different. And then also this push for men to be super toxic and aggressive and take over land and take, I mean, the Spanish had their own version of it, but there's a lot of nuance in like white British Victorian culture and how it played out in America and then how it became this, a version of empire and colonization. And it it's just way overdue <laughs> that we deal with the mixture of empire and Jesus and it, because they don't mix. Yeah. They really yeah. don't mix. Yeah. They, yeah. having read the Bible um, as a child growing up and, and well into my adult years in Spanish, and then having read it in Indonesia as an adult and in Malay and Singapore as an adult, when you're reading it, you're reading it through the lens and those languages of oppressed people who were oppressed by empire, by colonization, whether it was the Spaniards in Latin America or the Dutch 
in Indonesia or the Brits in Malaysia, Singapore, they were, I mean, those languages, you're reading it and you can't help but read it through the lens of like the oppressed ones. And so when I would get into American context with white evangelical churches, I remember my first year of college, my first semester, I worked in the admissions office um, as a tour guide. And one of our admissions counselors asked me how um, I was finding American church. And I think I just very clearly said to her, because I was, I mean, and this is no disrespect to First Baptist Birmingham, they may be very different now. But I remember an experience that previous Sunday where one of the deacons had prayed maybe over the offering and he had his like probably Auburn or Alabama tie because they're always about football, even in church, which to me was a very right, cultural right, experience right. too. Yeah. But I remember the guy praying and I remember feeling in my soul and in my brain wow, he doesn't think God is very powerful at all. Because the prayers I used to hear growing up in Latin America were prayers of desperation. They were prayers of mm -hmm. belief. They were prayers that God is going to change our nation because we have people that are living in oppression and poverty. And the Psalms that we would sing would often be lament or they would be about the oppressive um, empire coming against God's people. And, and the way Latin Americans resonated with being on the other side of empire was the lens that I grew up with. And right. so I did not comprehend it when I was in a mega church that was the empire. And right. so I don't know at what point things took a dark turn, but I think it's been a slow fade into what we have now. And the more we focus on the grandiosity and empire and ends justifies the means, we're going to, we're going to abuse women in the church and be like, it's yeah. fine because, you yeah. know, let's give empathy to the pastor. Um, he's a good leader and we want to keep him going. He's a toxic rock star. We don't want to do anything to mess him up because the church, the fruit quotes is the butts and seats, bucks and baptisms. Yep. Um, and Scott McKnight would add buildings for campus, <laughs> the four B's. Um, but that's not the fruit we're reading about in scripture. Yeah. It's the fruits yeah. of the spirit. And those are lovely. And so I think the grandiosity of this huge experience is something on this end of my abuse that can be very triggering for me. And I've had to, mm. if there's anything I've had to disentangle, it's that taking out some of my grandiosity that I was fed um, to say, it's okay to be small. It's okay to love the people right in front of you. Yep. And it's yep. okay to just have a table with bread and wine and yep. be like Jesus. Yep. yep. I've joked that, you know, in my years around people who were very much, you know, part of kind of the church growth, church planting, you know, everything's got to be big kind of movement that, uh, you know, whenever the topic of something like so central as love in the New Testament would come up, the answer to that was kind of like, oh, yeah, we should do that, too. As if, <laughs> as if the, the things that that Jesus points us to the most were somehow these little add ons instead of, you know, the, the main the main deal. What I what I love about what you said, tying this all kind of back to manifest destiny and empire, empire and, and British Victorian ideals is that. We don't realize that this everything's got to be big, everything's got to be fast, uh, the ends justify the means, that this all comes from someplace, that these are, these are long entrenched perspectives, and we, we brought them into the church, and, um, and we turned church into something weird, in, mm -hmm. in a way. And unfortunately, with that, only magnified the potential for abuse, 
And you know, you know all this. I didn't realize before we did this podcast the extent of your history in the Southern Baptist Convention. But <laughs> you know, you I don't know if all our listeners know, but you and I know that last year everything really broke open in the Southern yeah. Baptist Convention when it came out that uh, leaders at the highest level of that organization had been covering up for abusive pastors and yep. shaming and threatening women to keep yep. them silent, which when I heard that, I was just like, you know, yeah. I've said to so many people, if there had been women on that leadership body, then we would have had a different outcome. But of course there weren't because women aren't allowed at that yeah. level of leadership. And of course, Beth Moore has been a huge story related to these questions of, of the abuse of women and particularly in the, in the Southern Baptist church, you know, in yeah. 2016, there were kind of these rumblings of abuse starting to surface in the SBC. And then in 2016, Beth Moore heard the Access Hollywood tape where Donald Trump talks about what he does to women. And she gets critical of, of that, but all the Christians are fawning over Donald Trump. So all of a sudden she's getting, you know, her call center at her ministry is just overwhelmed with, yeah. uh, you know, people threatening her and mm -hmm. and demeaning her and she's she's being branded as liberal and woke and all this kind of stuff um if people haven't read her memoir they should go they should go read her so good. memoir mm -hmm. and so she finally can't do it anymore and she leaves she says i'm out you know yep. um and and uh, you know sbc i think is the largest evangelical denomination in the world and and i've considered myself an evangelical for most of the last 40 years but I don't identify with any of this kind of attitude or behavior. So it, for me, it raises a question. I'm curious what you think about it. Is evangelicalism as we talk about it, which I know isn't really just one thing, but is it kind of, is it salvageable? Or <laughs> are, are we hoping to emerge into a new kind of Christianity that is defined yeah. differently and bears different monikers? I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah. You know, I also don't identify as evangelical anymore. And it's probably because I live in the United States. Um, it, it's globally, I didn't have that experience. Evangelicals mm. globally don't have That's the same tone, but there is something about white evangelicals in America. It's become very political. It's become um, a situation, you know, like where we're seeing women like Beth Moore step out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, we're seeing, and this was before I ever left Singapore, I was reading the Barner reports about women leaving the evangelical church in droves, which was a mm -hmm. huge shift because women have always been the majority of most world religions, right? Um, and so what is going on with women and evangelicalism, right? Especially single women who just don't seem to have a place in this world where women are supposed to be popping out babies and staying home with the kids and, and holding down, being these very, what is very a Victorian ideal um, that we had early on in the United States, which prevented women from having the right to vote. And um, the women who fought mostly for the right to vote were deeply believing Christian women, hmm. white women, black women who had been, you know, Sojourner Truth, you know, her Ain't I a Woman yeah. speech was very um, beautiful even to this day, right? And so, um, but at the same time, when we think about evangelical now, my perspective of it is I just don't want that label on me because of all that that means and all of um, that being a part of evangelicalism has 
caused me to quench the Holy Spirit in myself. And I don't have everything completely figured out as to every single detail of what's going to happen after I die in the afterlife. None of us does, right? Even the best of us only has a very vague understanding of what that could look like based on their scriptures. But if there is any version of a judgment where I do meet God face to face and I do get asked how I stewarded the gifts God gave me, I don't think it's going to cut it if I stand face to face with God and say, well, I was evangelical, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. They just didn't right. let me use my gifts or whatever. And, right. and so for me, I what I see is a lot of people leaving evangelicalism, especially women. Gen Z seems to want nothing to do with it, and I'm raising three of them. Um, but I don't see, by and large, people leaving Jesus or the goodness of God and whatever they might call that. Some people might refer to God as the universe and whatever. I mean, God is big enough to be the universe um, and even bigger. Um, yeah. But whatever phrase people use, um, what I am seeing is people do hold these values, very a core um, group of values that are very dear and wonderful and beautiful and full of mystery. And what I hope to see um, and I am starting to see is whatever this reformation is that's happening that happens every 500 years. And we're not sure what it looks like at this point, but I'm seeing a lot of people leaving the four walls, not feeling comfortable because their autonomic nervous systems are reacting to the Hillsong songs where people were being burnout as the Hillsong, doc Hillsong documentary showed us and not paid for their work and writing the songs yeah. and all the exploitation of that. Um, or they're just triggered in the services because it sensory wise feels like a church where they were abused. And it's not that they want to go out and sleep with their boyfriend, like the, you know, people like, right. I don't know, right. Acts 29 pastors seem to want to right. say, but right. it's that they don't feel psychologically safe, spiritually safe, physically safe, and they have very good evidence in their bodies that keep the score to show them why that's not safe. And I'm one of them. And so um, having been in church my whole life, I can't go in spaces that feel at all and smell at all and sound at all like the church where I was abused so badly. Mm. Um, but mm. I do experience church in various ways. And I find uh, some of the Catholic you know, fathers and mothers of our church that we all share in our history pre-Reformation that talked about experiences outdoors, the Redwoods you know, between here and Santa Cruz, we love to go to them. And those are very spiritual experiences for me because I think trees point us toward heaven and they, the forest bathing you know, aspect of that does cleanse my nervous system and allow me to hear God and notice the birds that St. Francis may have preached to back yep, in the day. Yep, yep. Um, but I think that God is everywhere. And when we contain God to four walls, Jesus wasn't preaching in four walls. He yeah. was out on hillsides. And and so I think that what I hope is that we get away from labels like evangelicalism, Catholic, whatever, Protestant, and we come more to center around what we have in common. And we have more um, openness to the spaces and places where our faith can yeah can happen yeah. and it doesn't have to be Sunday morning and it can, you know, look like a table once a week or once every two weeks or once a month, but it, it doesn't have to be so rigid. Um, and yeah. that's what I hope we go to. You, you and I could talk about this for a long time. I think we actually. could, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like we're so desperate to recover a kind of faith that is whole, whole when it comes to the human heart, whole when it comes to the world, whole when it comes to how we see other people. Um, and I, I share, I share all of those those hopes that you have for something more whole. You know, we're doing it here in our church, and we we look kind of we look more like church. I mean, we have a building, and we you know, um, but you know, when you talked about a safe place, oh, I just want our 
I want our community to be a safe community for people wherever they come from. And I want them to know that and, and know that we value that for them. Hey, I, I know our time is, is limited and we have to wrap up. Um, so I want to ask one more question though. Uh, okay. And you, you, you kind of hinted at it just a little bit, but so we, we see the broader culture and I'm not saying we've arrived, but the broader culture, there are a lot of voices talking about equality and dignity of people when it comes to race, when it comes to women. Um, but we see a lot of resistance to those things uh, in the Christian culture and churches um, and particularly uh, white conservative churches. My question is, do, do you think that Christians are further hurting their credibility and their witness, if I can use that traditional word, in the broader culture by refusing to rethink these things? Yeah, what I see is, you know, some of the narrative, um, by and large, we've not gotten this response. Mostly the response my husband and I've gotten from speaking out into articles about our abuse, um, where we first spoke out last summer, is most people are like, me too, <laughs> you know, or I know someone, or, you know, I think that was the surprise. Um, but also, a few people um, will say things like, don't don't speak bad about the church because then people won't want to go. And I'm like, whoa, mm. what are you talking about? They know. You don't think people read about priests and choir boys and all. I mean, this is in Australia. I mean, I was in Singapore reading this in the newspaper about church, you know, and the abuse cases in church. And it started with the Catholics, but then it was the Southern Baptists. And then it was like all these different denominations now are having, you know, people coming and speaking out. And so we're, if we're talking about people outside the church, they know, they know yeah, abuse yeah. exists. This That's is right. not a secret. We are That's well right. past the point of keeping a yep. lid on this. The yep. best hope we have and what my friends who don't go to church say and want and long for is that we stand for justice, that we have an mm -hmm. integrity, that we do what they see and understand Jesus to do, which is flip those tables in that temple and say, no, this is a house of prayer for all yeah. nations. You will yeah. not yeah. exploit people. And, and they want to see that we actually aren't hypocrites, but we actually want truth and transparency. And so I think if we have any hope of this message spreading beyond the small group of Christians that, you know, are here and hopefully will continue to have their faith, um, is that we actually do something about it and we speak it out loud. But when we hide it, it's that's where it festers and grows and people outside see it way more than the people on the inside. Yeah. And so the people walking out the doors are the ones that have seen it and they've seen pastors and staff and, and elder boards and um, everybody cover it up with image management and, um, yeah. and people don't want any part of that. So the best hope we have is to expose it, to be truthful, to be transparent, to, to repair, to pay for the therapy for the survivors, to center the survivors, to listen to survivors. And if we have any hope of this, lasting in the ways we want it to it has to be a movement of truth and justice yeah i've said the same thing in our circles here and in our church community that you know out there everybody sees it the night the denial is all inside the doors you know yep uh, within the within the church community you made me think of that uh, conversation where jesus says to the pharisees you tithed off the herbs in your garden but you neglected justice and the love of god like Wow. You know, maybe that wasn't always obvious even to me, but it sure seems obvious now. Yeah. Um, 
that, that these are the things that, that matter. Well, hey, I just want to say, Lori, it's a pleasure getting to know you. And, you too. Uh, I'm so appreciative of you coming on to our, our fledgling new podcast here. And I hope that our conversation today can raise some awareness and uh, provoke people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, to really think deeply about these things if they, if they haven't begun to already. Um, so thank you again. And, thank you. Uh, and for all of you listening, I want to remind you of Lori's podcast, which you can find at aworldofdifferencepodcast.com. And I would really encourage you to go and listen to those six Our Story episodes which start with episode 100, uh, because I think that uh, it's when you hear someone's story that you go, oh, this is real. This stuff really happens to people and it's happening a lot in the church. And so um, go and check out a aworldofdifferencepodcast.com and uh, wherever you're watching Jesus at the Table, like us, subscribe, follow. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, you can join the conversation about this conversation in the comments. If you wanna join our email list, Go to our website, which is jesusatthetable.com. And uh, having said all that, uh, we will see you next time for more conversation with Jesus at the Table.